Welcome to Why Logosynthesis Works, a podcast that explores the transformative power of logosynthesis. I'm your host, Kathy Caswell, a master practitioner in logosynthesis. And in each episode, I'll be talking with a professional therapist, counselor, or coach who has experienced the profound benefits of using this model in their own life and in the lives of their clients. Join us as we explore the reasons why logosynthesis works and discover how it can benefit your own healing and personal growth to unlock your potential in work and in life. Hi, I'm thrilled to have Willem Lammers, the founder of Logosynthesis, join me from Badrigas, Switzerland. Willem has a 40 plus year career as a psychologist, a licensed psychotherapist, and an organizational consultant. He has led a training institute for coaching, counseling, and supervision in Switzerland. Willem has a deep curiosity to explore human potential, and Logosynthesis offers a beautiful and comprehensive model to support us through life's challenges, large and small. So thank you for joining us, Willem. Thank you for inviting me, Kathy. I look forward to this conversation, yeah. Like most people, I'm very concerned about what is happening in the world right now with Russia's war in Ukraine being top of mind. And I follow the strategies being used by world leaders, but yet I'm concerned about the impact of the damage and the trauma that is being experienced. And so I question, like, is this inevitable or is there a better way? So I'm interested in your perspective to help us understand what is happening and um, why it's happening and how we can move forward. So I'm listening. Yeah, I asked myself those questions too. And what I noticed is that we probably have lived in a kind of pleasant illusion for the past 75 years uh, that the world has learned something. And I'm not sure if that's true, or better said, I'm sure it's not true. And what we see in my perspective is a kind of collision of two fields. And one is the classical authoritarian way of governing people. And another way is the way we have organized in our democracies in the Western, in the Western world. And what you see is that the collision is mainly between the authoritarian um, countries or societies and the Western world. If you look at China, they don't take part. If you look at Africa, they don't take part. And when we look at this conflict, it's a conflict of, let's say, also developmental stages of societies. So I read an interesting article uh, about Russia, and I've been in Russia a number of times, and what I notice is that there is a kind of silent acceptance of authority. So it's 
what they do up there is it's what they're doing so there is no let's say I touch so if something doesn't please me I will say I don't like this but they don't have that it's they a different culture they don't have an organization or a way of organizing things in which people have a relationship on a let's say on an equal level and I read an interesting article in our local newspaper in which a guy said that the Tsarist regime, the Soviet regime and the Putin regime missed two important dates in history and the first one was 1776 and the second one was 1798, uh, because these are moments in which the individual started to become important in society. It was the American independence uh, declaration when in the course of human events, you know that, and we had uh, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness as an individual and unalienable right for what is important for you. And we had something uh, similar when in 17, 1789, the French Revolution broke out and people didn't want to be, uh, let's say, determined by an aristocracy anymore. So we have two hundred years, or more than two hundred years, of tradition in thinking about individuals. And that's the way our society is organized, and Western Europe especially. We have, in Holland, we have 20 political parties or whatever, and everybody can say what they think, and there's a, a kind of silent agreement if a majority of our people thinks in a certain way, then that's what we're doing. And we have learned that, especially in Switzerland, we have learned it. We had uh, yesterday and uh, votes again and we decide on every single thing and that's normal and usually I'm on the losing side because I'm more leftist than rightist and Switzerland is more rightist than leftist but if I lose I know uh, that's okay because I it's also possible that I win or that my ideas are supported by a majority. And if you have a society in which that has not happened, and that society has had a Tsar and a nobility, or they had a the Soviets uh, or an dicta dictatorial system, and now they have a capitalist dictatorial system, then that's different from the way we are educated. So that's why it's so unbelievable that th these things happen. And if you uh, look at the the raw power of authority in combination with the um, the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church, which supports this behavior, then that's quite different from our more or less secular. Western democracies and 
Africa cannot take take a party in it or choose a side because they have both, and they have interesting uh, yeah. that experience with the democracy we have for two hundred years because the colonization started in the 60s of the last century. Uh, China is too close in the system to say, no, are you crazy? And they also have their own interests with Taiwan. And then it's amazing how the Western democracies have come together in this thing and say, this is not what we want. And what is it? Ukraine is representing Ukraine is representing democratic system between these two fields and there's a Russian uh, East and a Ukrainian West when it comes to languages but there's there since the breakup of the Soviet Union they have tended to to identify uh, identify more with the West and it's, let's say, more social fields than with the East, with its autocratic fields, it's Lukashenko in, in Belarus and Putin in um, Moscow. So then is there any chance of peace if we're so far apart on the spectrum? Like, how do we live together peacefully? Does it have to be that the authoritarian systems that the people have to hit, find their voice and and come yeah. forward? I'm, I'm not quite sure if the people in Russia will find their voice because they have been uh, subjected to propaganda for many years. So... We can't imagine that the majority of people are behind Putin, but they are. And this is this trust in the Tsar that they, uh, there is an, let's say, a vertical relationship that the Tsar is more important than I am. And there is also this country, if you live in Vladivostok, you're not instance what happens in Moscow because it's just too far away. Right. When it comes to coexistence, um, I think you have to be very clear that there are boundaries because this Russian system doesn't know boundaries, doesn't respect boundaries. So. If uh, Putin has occupied Ukraine, there is no reason why he wouldn't uh, occupy the Baltic or Poland or uh, Czech Republic because these all have been part of a sphere in which the Soviet Union and the Tsar as an emperor reigned. And Finland has been occupied by the Russians and only can uh, exist as an independent state because it's fully neutral. And it doesn't, it it won't stop if NATO doesn't say, but the the buck stops here. 
that won't stop because there is no reason in the system why it would stop. There are no boundaries built in. And what I think is very discouraging is that all the rules which has been established in the negotiations of, let's say, the USA, the USA with the Soviet Union, uh, all the uh, contracts and agreements, uh, they, they suddenly have lost their value. You don't uh, attack citizens. They do. You, you don't at uh, attack hospitals. They do. So they haven't any, let's say, respect for what we used to respect. And that means that if we think we can negotiate with them, we can only negotiate with them from a position of strength. That's what, that's what my idea is. And so if he doesn't respect boundaries, so is it like, is, I think often of the book that Bob Woodward wrote about um, Trump and fear and that fear is real power. And so there's a real sense that Putin puts fear out there and it paralyzes his people, it paralyzes his adversaries. But is fear the real power? Let's say the, the, the potency to install fear. And Putin is, is ahead of the West in the, in, the, in the moment he really dares to think about using nuclear weapons or biological weapons, or uh, chemical weapons, because that's simply not done in our way of thinking. But if he just forgets all the internet, international treaties and says, I'm doing what I want because my, I have this purpose to establish my power with the <coughs> Orthodox Greek uh, um, Russian Orthodox Church behind him. That's really tough. And I would bet against uh, Putin using that power. So that when you bring in the church, like to me, we've got this real sense of, you know, sometimes we end up creating these gods, right? So we put Putin in power, we put Donald Trump in power, we give them our power, we kind of put them in a position where we almost make them like a god, and then they think they are a god, and then they do whatever they want, and it's not based on a loving um, energy, it's it's based it's on hate and fear, passion. right? And yet, how do you... Like, how do you approach them when there's no connection there? The only thing I can think about is to set boundaries and to set very clear boundaries. So what Biden has done this, this week in Poland uh, seems very important to me. He said, there is a boundary you don't transgress. Then he made the uh, remark that uh, there should be a new government in Russia which he might not have done, uh, should, should, he shouldn't have done, uh, what 
he stepped back from that remark. It was a pity because he gave a, a piece of his power away because it's not allowed to say such a thing. But let's say not allowed to say it in the Western world or in not in the West, like are we in the, the in a democracy international yeah. international diplomacy. Yeah, so you don't say that kind of things. So these are the old rules, but Putin doesn't play with, with the old rules. He plays with it, tries to impose his own rules on the system until so, somebody stops him. And maybe someone in the system will stop him, but he seems to be well organized. So the only resistance can come from the outside. And he's been surprised that the uh, Ukrainians work so, uh, fight so hard, but they fight, in fact, for what the West has acquired for the past 200 years. So the, the rights of, the, of individuals, the rights of women and children, the rights of uh, citizens to vote for an, for a government of their preference, that's, these are all things that don't exist in Russia. So Ukraine represents the Western world in this conflict, conflict between authoritarian systems in which the individual doesn't count and the Western democracies, let's say Churchill said, yeah, <laughs> democracy is... Uh, one of the worst systems we have, but but still the best we have, or something like that. Yeah. It's messy, isn't it? Because yeah. it's, it's it, it gives everybody their individual power, and everybody's got different ideas. Yeah. And then we have the role of capital um, all over, of course. So what we see is not always what we get. So is there an element where we think we approach it from our individual? individual freedom standpoint and we have a belief that diplomacy should work and we should be able to go in there with a diplomatic solution and then we're surprised or disbelieving that it, it gets thrown back at us with such aggression yeah it wasn't part of our frame of reference that this could happen even though, if you look carefully, Putin hasn't said anything else since 2008. And Biden was there when he said all, kind of, all that kind of things. So Biden knew it was coming. The Ukrainians knew it was coming. But we didn't realize we were so busy with vaccination or non-vaccination or whatever. We haven't had have any experience with the bad side of the world. Let's say, of course, there are some experience, but that it could be so bad, it wasn't just just part of our frame of reference. And so then the pandemic role in this, because if you listen to the news, they say, you know, through the pandemic, Putin became more um, isolated. So he wasn't as connected with the other Western leaders and he kind of became more isolated. What's the role of the pandemic and how this is amplifying 
or would it have happened anyway? I think the pandemic had, has held it up for a while. So if the pandemic hadn't happened, then there would, would have been less of a danger for the Russian army. Uh, so they would have organized themselves earlier, is my guess. But the pandemic has paralyzed the whole world for a few years. So that's also part of, uh, yeah, Russia has, <clears throat> um, let's say the numbers of Russia haven't been so high, but it's more because of the statistics they uh, get in than uh, what we can expect what happened. So pandemic hasn't, let, has, let's say, delayed it, in my opinion. Okay. And, and so as far as like getting out of this and a way forward, so then, you know, sometimes you, you hear that, you know, we all end up taking our perspective as being the right perspective in the way that the world should unfold. Yes, so living, living in Canada, I think everyone should have freedom and should, you know, so it's, you know, does the other piece have to collapse in order for it to evolve? But then we have our issues in Canada that we have to work through as the world changes as well. And we're not always so open to do that difficult work either. So then it comes back to, you know, for the world, for the world leaders, you know, how do they keep their people safe and, and still help them adapt in this changing world. Yeah. And then, um, let's say there might be very different perspectives on how, how to keep people safe. So if Putin wants to restore the Soviet or the Tsarist, uh, um, Imperium, then, uh, and he thinks that's the best for Russia. Then the rest is not important. It's, it's not important how many soldiers die because they have enough. Uh, they don't, it's not important how poor the people are because it's never been a criteria uh, how uh, people went. So in the, in the 1930s, uh, Stalin has um, caused a famine in the whole Ukraine and millions of people have died of hunger and we are living still in that field so it's our western perspective that people should be taken care of that's not part of let's say that the cruel side of that system what I noticed when I'm in Eastern Europe there are very strong networks of people on on the ground so um, people don't trust the government but they trust their friends so you always have a small circle of friends you trust and what's happened outside is probably inimical compared to that little world you create so the protection of the individual comes from a small circle of friends and family while we have an experience that the state takes care of us in a certain way. We have a, um, 
insurance against almost everything. And if the state, um, usually people in the West protest, protest against the state because it doesn't do enough. In those countries, uh, nobody protests against the state because they don't do enough, but because they do, do, don't do anything compared to our system. Well, we spend 10, 20% of our state income to social and uh, social things and medicine. And it becomes a way of getting in power, doesn't it? Because if you yeah. promise that you're going to look after people, then yeah. they vote for you and then you, yeah. you're in power That's... and they think that they're in power because they, they're being uh, looked after. Yeah, and let's say it's not an argument for us to, let's say, make Switzerland strong. Get it. Make Canada strong with these big neighbors. No, it's not an argument. So Canada and Western, Western Europe are pretty close to each other when it comes to taking care of people. And then it's so also very surprising if there is a terrorist in Canada that's so unexpected because we take care of any, everybody. It's the same terrorism in Switzerland doesn't exist. Or we don't think about about the option. So I think that, let's say, Canada and Switzerland, and maybe other, other small countries, they have a kind of balance. And they have ignored, I think that, that Europe has ignored that it needs boundaries. And first we had it on the south side with what comes from the people who come from Africa. And now we have it on the eastern side where someone comes in with tanks and rockets. And so then it kind of brings us to you know, the types of issues that my daughters are concerned about, like climate change and global warming and humanitarian crisis that are global in nature. And of course, I'm concerned of them as well. But when we were growing up, it was never a topic of conversation. And so if, if we aim to help solve and, and move forward to address these existential challenges, that requires globalism. So if all our boundaries now, if we don't feel safe and we shrink those boundaries and we're to more nationalist or even smaller than that, then what? how do we ever address the global challenges? I don't know. And I'm, I'm pessimistic if I see this happening and if, if I see that it's very strange. So. Uh, as soon as the oil gets more expensive, the state uh, tries to to balance that out by lowering the taxes on oil, which is in fact, let's say, from a climate perspective, it would the, the oil should be, have twice the price. So, but as soon as something happens in the here and now, which is unpleasant for the people, then the states uh, try, try to balance and to, to buffer. 
So for the climate, this is not a good time. And, and yet, I have a serious, yeah. I have a serious doubt if if this time will ever come, because what I see happening is we don't address the, the issue at it at the roots where it caused, but we are doing something to um, to let's say buffer the, the effects. So um, we don't think about um, let's say how to stop CO uh, CO two, but we plant different trees or the Dutch have wine now where the French have less wine next twenty years. And maybe this even a Norwegian wine grower. Norwegian A Dutch wine. I haven't heard of that really before. No. <laughs> and the South of English makes a better sparkling wine than the than the Champagne in France. So we are trying to get the best out of it by adapting to the symptoms, but not addressing the roots. And yet, so if you look at the the political will, climate change and global warming, it's one of the top issues on a global level that we all say that we want to address. And so then, you know, I still keep coming back to how do the world leaders and you know we put a lot of weight on them to to help us address the challenges because we're saying we want you to fix that and yet they're just reflecting in some ways the will of the people so how do we create a space i guess where it's safe for them to guide us through even when it's not comfortable going through this change In principle, in democratic countries, we have the option that we can choose different leaders. So in the elections in Switzerland yesterday, um, we saw that there were, were new um, leaders uh, voted for on the community level who come uh, from the Green Liberal Party and not from the more far-right Swiss People Party. So there's a shift going on there, and the Swiss liberals are, have a, are a combination of aware of climate issues and aware of economical issues. So in fact, it must come some, somewhere from there because uh, we have this polarity that those who are busy with climate change don't think about the economy, and those who think about the economy don't think about climate change. And let's say if you are a little bit reasonable, you can make a lot of money with climate change nowadays if you develop all kinds of new technologies which would stop, uh, let's say, um, emitting CO2. CO2. But let's say the, let's say the democratic process is designed to address this, these things. So, so the leaders are always representation of the people who vote for them. And where to start is always the question. But I think um, 
the more autonomy and the more education people have, the more they will be motivated to think about more than surviving from today into tomorrow. So the the change must come probably from the middle class who has the time and the money to think. Because if you don't have a job, you won't have any influence to change something. If you are, let's say, on the, the right side of the spectrum, then the economy and power is more important. Maybe I'm simplifying here, but this is the, these are my simple thoughts about it. And so, who are the people who are most consciousness, most conscious in the situation that they also have an influence? So, let's say I have time to think, so I develop my local synthesis model. Local synthesis helps people to overcome blocks and to become more autonomous. So, that's my contribution. And I'm spending probably every wake minute on it. And it's a wonderful I, contribution, so thank you. Yeah. yeah, so let's say, and the question is, what are your specific skills and your competence which can, let's say, turn the tide? So you're doing your thing by making these interviews and putting them on YouTube. I'm doing my writing. I see people doing, giving training, see people working with people who are, let's say, stuck in their system. And and it's possible that one person has a lot of power. If you look at Putin, he has more power than any of us. And he has organized this whole society around him. Donald Trump has done this the same in America to the point that he won the elections. Well, he didn't run in the last one, we know that. But it seems to be possible that one person collects that kind of power, but you can't collect that, count, that kind of power without ignoring very much of what is important for me, probably for us. And I think that the big statesmen uh, in history have always have a, had a, an authoritarian side, a realistic side, and they were taking care of people. So if you look at uh, Churchill in England, of course, he has his own, let's say, like uh, piece of history. We have the goal in France, who really could see a whole system and could see what was important. The same for Roosevelt's in the war. So those people who are well, having a vision in the service of the people instead of in the service of their own, um, let's say, will to power. 
they can have an enormous influence too. So if you look at people like Elon Musk or Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs or those who have carried the big technological transition, these are all individual people, single people who put this into the world with the help of other people they inspire. And of course, we have our cell phones, and we have our uh, computer screens, and it changed our lives. The fact that we can talk now here, and uh, you are five hours ahead of us, the way around, that's because of these people have done the, their job. And then the question is, what can we do? What can any one of us do? Uh, to activate that potential. And that potential is different for everybody. So uh, one of the important, let's say, basic principles of Lokshinsen is that you are here with a mission and you are essence. And to find that mission, what's mine, and to give it a form into what I call the matrix, and to, to learn the skills and to to acquire a language to find your place in the world. That's different for each of us. And I've been doing a lot of work in recognizing what is your task in this world and what do you need to put it into form or to shape reality. And everybody's shaping reality also if you think you don't shape reality. If you don't shape re if you do nothing, you shape reality because you you give a chance to those other influences. Yeah, that was uh when I because I published two books about logosynthesis based on my personal experience. And my first one was, you know, based on being a busy working mom and working in the corporate environment and all the demands going through a lot of change. But the day I decided to publish that book was the day after Trump was elected. And I thought, surely to God, whatever I say is it's not going to be anymore. Um, you know, if that energy is out in the world with Trump in power, then, you know, I've got to break past my comfort level. And, um, you know, I just got so much trust in this model as far as taking us forward and helping us to overcome a lot of the challenges that we experience. So it, it took a lot, but, you know, maybe that was the catalyst to say, get over yourself and just do it kind of thing, right? And so, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, at the moment, I'm working on a book uh, which, is, which has the courage to create in the title. So you can't create without going over a threshold and without leaving the familiar behind. Because the only thing that's important for you is what you are doing in this world. And there's a quote from the Bible that what you do for the little, the, for the smallest people, you do it for Christ and the Christ in the sense of the higher goods. And I think that's important. So 
it's also in the small things. It's in supporting people, uh, children to, to grow up in, in a certain environment which is safe and in which there is a place for more than, let's say, economic or um, material thinking. And if you come from a more spiritual background, it's also important that your children learn to live in this world and not any kind of bubble in which everybody's happy and laughing at each other. So for me, it's important to, to, to look at both perspectives. So what I call essence in the matrix, you are, you have, you are of divine origin. You come into this world with something which is about you, which comes from you. And then you, <clears throat> you enter this world and maybe people are not waiting for what you have to offer. Um, it's almost, <clears throat> I'm always a little bit skeptical if, if people are really enthusiastic about a new idea, because probably it's not a quite new idea. It's a, it's a comforting idea, but living your mission is not always comfortable. And it's also not necessary because if you are in contact with your mission, it doesn't matter so much if the other people like it uh, the first time, the second time, or the 40th time. So when I was uh, this, in this process of discovering log synthesis, my colleagues kept laughing and what's he adds? And uh, yeah. And I was disappointed because they didn't like what I had discovered. I was very enthusiastic. I learned to find the language and I learned to connect to certain people who like it. And if people don't like it, it's not my business because they built, they won't build anything with me together. That's true, right? Because I can also relate because when I speak about it, it's new in my circle it's not the way we normally address issues um and so yeah it takes a while just and and not everybody understands it and sometimes it gets frustrating <laughs> but it, it's it's such a powerful model when you work with it and understand it and to me it allows us to create a path forward that we're not constantly repeating those exact patterns that we're seeing happening now when we look at um you know, what's happening with, with almost a replication of what's happened in the past. It allows us to, to kind of heal that past and, and move forward into something new. And so I have a lot of faith that, you know, as we learn a new language and as we learn a new way to move forward in the world, we don't have to keep repeating the, the same patterns that we've always had. And that does allow new ways to, to kind of show up that, um, yeah, we can all kind of live more peacefully together. Yeah, and I think it's very important that we have a growing community of people who can talk together. So let's say if you, you're the only one in Canada that knows this, it's quite different from having at least a circle of people who understand and who can create a common base to go into the world with this. Yeah. So it's so different uh, for me now um, 
with a large group of people on Facebook, in the media, in the training groups, compared to where we started. And we started from scratch 17 years ago. And for me, when I first was introduced to it, it was a lot of, um, in the world of counseling, a lot of trauma work. And that was not where I was coming from. Like, I was just a busy working mom who wanted to, uh, you know, kind of chill out a little bit more and, and coming from that corporate world. And and for me, it took a while just to, to kind of get comfortable with that and and um, see this, the exact same application um, in a different aspect of everyday living, I guess. Yeah, and I think some of my perspective has also shifted. So I come from a healing background as a psychologist and psychotherapist, and um, I come from a spiritual background. And in the beginning, the, this was about more about healing individuals than, let's say, healing the world. So, and in time, I've realized that it's more and more that how important it is to that we enter the matrix that, and that we look for resources around us instead of in ourselves. It's important to realize who you are, what you what you come from. Uh, why you're here and then the next step is to enter the matrix and look for people who 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 wants to talk to me who doesn't want to talk to me where are where's the resistance because you learn from the resistance and you learn from the cooperation you need both but if you let's say stay in your bubble with all people who understand you uh, nothing will ever change because you don't leave your bubble yeah, and sometimes I'm more prone to go for the resistance, and that isn't always good either. Yeah, yeah. but that's what I <laughs> admire in you, Kathy. <laughs> that's great, Shunma. Yeah. But when you see, like, I mean, I look at world leaders right now, and I wouldn't want to be a world leader in this changing environment because it is intense right now. And so to me, working with logosynthesis, it's so consistently when you work with people, they feel distressed, and afterwards they feel a sense of peace or, you know, more peace, more calm, and more clarity to take their next step forward. So instead of being stuck in these reactive patterns and, and fear-based patterns, there's there's a much more calm knowing about moving forward. And I just, you know, I think everyone can benefit from from that in and this environment. That's the main difference. So... You are in an environment in which you can be calm and in which you can see the resources for you. If I look at, I haven't seen anybody who looked at Putin that way, but if I think how traumatized must this guy be to meet this? Uh, he comes from a very authoritarian system in the in the secret police, the Cheka in in uh, Russia, who is really that and that secret police is really the toughest environment when it comes to lack of respect for people. He's 
been trained there. His individual needs for love and affection. I don't see anything that, and I think that that connects him to Trump also. Both are not loved. So they compensate the lack of love in their lives with the need for power. So in Longchen's terms, it's, it's second order dissociation. People react to them with rejection, which activates more will to power. So the trauma of Putin is not part of the diagnosis. He is a sociopath, he is a narcissist, he is a low-level narcissist, uh, the same for Trump. But the loneliness in these guys and the emptiness and the need for confirmation from the outside world is driven by that to a, to a level, let's say, no normal person can understand. So maybe when it comes to leaders, they need also respect for their vulnerability. Yeah, because it's not a safe environment to be vulnerable when you're a world leader, right? And if you're vulnerable, then no. you're going to so get attacked. At, at least you need a space where you can be vulnerable because then you can reflect if you have to defend all the time. And if you don't know if the guy next door or the guy you're meeting today is going to kill you or not, then all your, your whole life is organized around survival and not about let's say something more subtle. Yeah. And one of the things that I find with the locus, you know, from my uh, work with logosynthesis, what I notice is that there's two aspects. One is, you know, do I feel respected and is the other person respecting me? And so a lot of times we interpret the other person's action as being disrespectful but maybe it's just a reaction that I have and they mean nothing by it. So they could very well mean something by it. But on the other hand, it might just be my reaction to them. And so I think, you know, even for as a group of, you know, if we want to move forward in a global community without feeling safe and respected and, and being able to build a trusting um, world, I think, you know, somehow we've got to um, be able to project respect and also be able yeah. to interpret. Let's say it's already a giant step forward if you're able to not need to the respect of the other. So if you do something to get respected, you're not autonomous anymore and you're probably your task in the world is somewhere in the back bench. And as soon as you start with respect, regardless if you get it, then you have more of a chance because some people will react to that respect that you show them and other people won't because their trauma is more than you can overcome with your respect. But just if you walk into the world and you expect no respect, you will tend to ignore that there are people who respect you. Mm -hmm. 
but if you see how just a little bit of you go to the supermarket and there's a lady at the uh, cash desk and you're friendly even though it's Saturday afternoon you're probably the only person who's friendly on this Saturday afternoon because everybody's in, in under stress and if you look how just a second of friendliness can change the day or the Saturday afternoon for this lady and there's so many opportunities we have to practice gentle gently meeting people well I'm not always succeeding I must admit <laughs> but what we don't we have a tool that we are you know a, a system that we can use to work yeah. on that yeah. so that, <laughs> that it doesn't happen the next time yes uh, but as soon as I think it's someone else's uh, fault that I feel bad I have some homework yes and other people might say oh he is the cause of me feeling bad and then you're in trouble because there more, will be more people who cause you feeling bad yeah. yeah and I think you know a big part of it is to notice what's going on notice our reactions notice uh, and actually take time logosynthesis is a beautiful model to when I notice my reactions just to um, resolve those underlying triggers and then take a next step forward and you know regardless where we are in our lives I think that's beneficial but I think from a leadership standpoint when you know leaders can help people feel safe um, the more they feel safe we feel safe I think it is powerful and I've seen it thank you you're welcome yeah so I is there um a last key message that you would like to leave with for us as far as uh, your work your, your perspectives there are so many memes around nowadays i like this one be the change you want to see in the world very timely thank you you're welcome thank you for having me Thank you for listening to Why Logosynthesis Works. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and gained valuable insights into the power of logosynthesis. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and join us next time as we continue to explore the transformative potential of this innovative approach to personal growth and emotional healing so that you can unlock your potential in work and in life.